Welcome to the Fit for Golf podcast. I am your host, Mike Carroll. The goal of the Fit for Golf podcast is to share insightful and entertaining conversations based around golf, fitness, and health. In today's episode, I talk to European tour player Scott Jameson. We talk about Scott's move to Florida, how he has structured his practice time during the European tour shutdown, his goals for the future, and more. This podcast is sponsored by the Fit for Golf app, the only golf fitness resource you will ever need. Check it out on www.fitforgolf.blog. It is not available in the App Store. Scott Jameson, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Absolutely, no. Thanks for having me. Excited to share my thoughts. Hopefully I can uh, provide some decent insight. Yeah, that's great. So people can probably pick up with the accent. Scott is a Scottish European tour pro, but for the last couple of years, his home base has been Point of Edra Beach in Florida. Can you tell us a little bit about what prompted the move to the US and how life has been with there as your home? Yeah, sure. Um, I... Yeah, like I, I went to college here. I was at college and um, up in Augusta, Georgia. Um, it finished in 2005. Um, and I met my wife while I was at school there. She went to University of Florida, but met her through, through a teammate. Um, she's from Orlando originally. Um, and uh, yeah, from, you know, we were all, we've been together since pretty much. And um, uh you know, I, so I always spent a lot of time here in the US. Uh, once we got married, she came and lived with me in Scotland for uh, for six years. Uh, I always say Florida to Glasgow's true love. Uh, <laughs> so that was nice. And then, um, um, yeah, so we moved here yeah, two years ago. Um, I was at college here in the States, uh, finished in 2005, right enough. But when I was there, I met my wife. Um, and uh, she was from Orlando originally, um, and her, her twin sister moved here after college and uh, in Ponte Vedra here. Um, so uh, after her moving to Scotland for six years, um, we decided that we wanted to to live over here. You know, I thought, um, you know, we've got three young kids, so uh, you know, maybe a few more hands on deck to help with them, and also hopefully I'm. You know better conditions year round to try and improve as a golfer okay yeah that's that's interesting um how do you manage the travel from the european tour with your home base being in florida do you try and do a set number of weeks say of consecutive tournaments and then return back to florida or do you occasionally have stopovers in different parts of the world between tournaments um yeah i do everything in blocks really i try and always uh, kind of you know play a minimum of two uh two weeks uh usually three but then i always like to if i'm coming home i need to come home for two weeks i've tried in the past to you know the odd week here and there just to break up some bigger events or whatever it may be but it's it that really takes a toll that's when it starts to become a little silly um you can maybe get away with it once um you know, and then if you manage your time well at tournaments uh, and when you return home. Um, but last year, I think I tried to squeeze two one-week trips in near the end of the year. And uh, 
it was just too much. And then when I got back on the road playing again, um, just mentally, I can always tell mentally, not so much physically. Um, it's just like the mental things that like you're just not switched on, maybe harder to commit to certain things, and then you're you get agitated uh, a lot quicker than you ordinarily would if you were, you know, well rested. I think. Um, so yeah, it it is tougher log- logistically, but you know, you maybe miss one or two tournaments a year that you would ideally want to play. Um, and but you just replace them with other tournaments, and you know, do it. so I do everything in a two or three week block generally. Of course, and then even if you miss a little bit with extra travel and uh, you don't quite play the same amount of tournaments, maybe the balance of having the year round weather to basically practice as much as you want in in high quality facilities is worth the trade off. Uh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, as as people get older, you know, and they've their families grow and everything, you know, you, you need to be at home more. You want to be at home more. Um, like, you know, I went from the first couple of years out, you know, you're playing a minimum of 30 a year probably. Uh, but this is now my 10th season. So, yeah, I think the last few years I've been down at 24, 25, maybe 26, like at a push. Um, but, you know, that's, that's more than enough for me. I think uh, I would rather play more high quality events uh, less often and you know and have you know be 100% ready to go when uh, you know when I'm on the tee rather than kind of dragging dragging on and maybe playing a couple of extra events that you know because finishing finishing 40th doesn't really do anything for you you can finish 40th you know for the rest of your life and it's you're not you might squeak by and, make, uh, and keep your card, but uh, it doesn't really do much. It probably does your confidence some good, you know, playing four rounds and, you know, four solid rounds and finishing 40th. But in the, the grand scheme of things, as far as your season going, you, your season goes, you know, for points and world ranking points, um, it really doesn't do an awful lot. You know, I think you get, you, you need big finishes to really make an impact in this game. Um, so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd rather be, I'd rather be fresher, ready to go and, you know, have a, have a big impact on, you know, five, six events a year, uh, as opposed to, you know, playing 10 average events a year and, and having less and less uh, big finishes. Yeah. I suppose that, probably becomes a little a little bit easier too if you're you know reasonably comfortable in terms of your card being retained and then you can pick and choose where you play as opposed to feeling under pressure on the borderline of you know being inside the top 110 and feeling like you need to try and play every week uh yeah i mean i've been in that boat i think three times uh out the last 10 years which is uh which isn't particularly comfortable but even then I'm still. I think I've been pretty smart. I mean, I've not, I've not chased it and played every single event. Maybe I, I would have played more living in the UK just with easier access. Or if you miss a cut, you can come home and kind of hit the refresh button. But that option isn't really available to me living here. Um, but uh, I've still been reasonably smart. I think and just make sure that you know take my time and when it's my turn to go, just kind of trust that. I can, you know, produce the goods when when it matters. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Probably patience developed after doing it for a few years too, I imagine, as opposed to when you first get on tour and almost feeling like you need to go all the time. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I still, you know, I still get that feeling sometimes. Sometimes it is, you know, but maybe that's what keeps you hungry as well. You know, like if I can back here for two weeks and, you know, I've, I, the golf's always on the TV first thing in the morning, obviously. And, uh, you know, and it, it gives you a little, you feel like you're missing out on something, which then, you know, that kind of motivates me to go and practice. And, you know, then I'm hungry to go when it, when it's my turn to play again. So, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's you just got to be smart and try and balance balance it all out uh, and listen to your body as well a lot. I think that's something I'm, I've been learning um, as well through the through the years. No, that that definitely makes sense. We're recording this at the end of June 2020, so obviously this season has been completely different, and not just the season, but kind of everywhere in the world has been on a slightly different agenda. It's been 15 weeks since your last tournament on the European Tour. And by the tour, by the time the tour resumes on July 22nd for the British Masters, it will be a 19-week break. Does a professional golfer need to be careful he doesn't just start working on things for the sake of working on things during this time? And how structured have you been in this time off in terms of making sure that you're not going down rabbit holes just out of, say, boredom or having the time available? Uh, yeah, that's a great that's a great question, great point. Um, I have watched on actually being, you know, spending time with a lot of fellow pros over at, at DPC Sawgrass. Like, I've I've watched on in, in, in amazement, actually, at some guys that are, you know, still four or five weeks out from there. They've, they've obviously gone back to compete in the last couple of weeks, but if I go back, you know, seven, eight weeks ago, probably when I was kind of starting back up hitting balls, uh, you know, I was wondering what a lot of them were doing, just pounding balls on end, on end, on end. And I just thought, these guys are going to be burned out when it comes to their time to tee it up. Um, so there's definitely been, uh, you know, one of the coaches I, I work with here locally, he uh, he said that to me. He said he's had a ton of guys that have been doing some uh, coronavirus tinkering or lockdown tinkering, whatever uh, you want to call it, um, which there's definitely probably room for improvement. Uh, everyone can obviously always improve, but um, I think we're as golfers, we're also keen to improve and we're looking for an edge anywhere we can possibly get it. It's really easy to maybe get sucked down a, a road that's that really won't help you and ultimately may be detrimental. Um, so you got to be really careful, I think. So I I feel like I've been fairly smart about that. Like I, I did a kind of block of quite hard practice and then I've, I've played um, a couple of Monday qualifiers for the Corn Ferry events that were in town and then a couple of mini tour events. Um, so now, right now, I feel as though I'm back in a little kind of block of practice. Um, for the next couple of weeks and I'm going to try and play a couple of one day things right before I leave um, just to get the scorecard in the hand again and uh, you know hopefully you, you can't replicate the feeling of uh, you know the the big you know the real deal European Tour event but definitely um, playing the one day events and, and things can at least get the scorecard in your hand that uh, makes it a lot more realistic yeah, that's that's interesting. I think a misconception from, say, the general public or even 
the say amateur golf world more recreational players is that tour pros are you know eight hours a day on the range every day hitting ball after ball and I saw an interesting comment from Eddie Pepperell probably last year on Twitter and he was just replying to somebody who asked him about practice and he said and Eddie's one of the you know he's still reasonably young I think he's probably 29 and he said yeah. um, like I've been playing golf for over 20 years and I'm after getting very good at it he said, I don't see how much I can develop by just hitting balls and balls. There's a couple yeah. of fundamental things that I know that if I can do, I'm going to play reasonably well. And after yeah. that, it's more a matter of sharpening up at the right time, making sure that yeah. I'm fresh, as opposed to trying to you know, almost feel like that if I practice more and more, it will lead me to getting better, which might work when you're you know, an 18 or 12 or 6 handicap trying to get down but not when you're, you know, say a, a plus five to plus eight kind of range, which is, you know, probably roughly where a tour pro is. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like my, yeah, my daily practice, uh, as far as hitting balls goes, that every day that never lasts more than an hour. Like, and it's, it's rarely more than, uh, you know, like my technical work will never be more than, probably 50 or 60 balls like technical work and then I maybe hit another another 100 to 150 balls that's like performance based uh you know as far as full shot stuff um but yeah yeah the you know then I have a lot of time that's uh you know that's obviously putting around the green um and uh, wedge wedge stuff um but yeah I mean that I honestly like I my my practice uh now here living in Florida like I, I'll get up early and I get out of the house and I'm you know I'm done by lunchtime I feel like mm-hmm. I've done everything I need to do my longer days maybe when I go on the golf course but even then like I, do, I wouldn't I could I could play nine holes in a golf cart like in an hour if, if I do it at the right time of day uh and that would be I could hit two balls in every shot and play like a a worse ball scramble or a better ball scramble, whatever, whatever it may be. Like, um, so there's, you know, I definitely don't, there's a few exceptions to the rule, you know, get someone like VJ Singh who I see here all the time, you know, he's 57 and he's still, I mean, the bucket of ball he gets in the, in the morning yeah. when he goes to practice is outrageous. I feel like I could, I could spend all week doing that and never, uh, you know, like I, I get bored as well. Like, yeah, and if the quality's not there, then What's for the point, point, it's a waste of time. Um, so I kind of bounce around a little when I practice. Um, and I, I have to keep it interesting or else um, I think it's, it can be counterproductive. Do, do you play some money games against kind of pros that live nearby? Is there anybody kind of that we know that you play regularly with, tour pros that people will be familiar with? Yeah, I mean, everyone's shed was different here. Obviously, with um, playing on, uh, there's lots of different. There's a few guys on European tour here. Scott Hen lives here. Julian Suri lives here. They're both European tour players. Um, and then um, there's a bunch of the Corn Ferry guys and the PGA Tour guys live here. Obviously, you know, and they use PPCs with base. So um, during lockdown, actually, there was a lot of money games going on, which was fun. Um, and obviously helped everybody stay sharp. Fred Funk kind of got got some guys together, and they, it was kind of like an organized money game two day event every week. Oh, great! And yeah, so I did I did a couple of those. Um, 
you know, and they had some real good fields, like Billy Horschel played, uh, Joachim Neiman played a couple. Um, you know, there's uh, you know, there's tons more guys than that. They're yeah. just top of my head. Jim Furyk played. Uh, I think VJ played one of them as well. Um, cool. Yeah, so no, there's there's lots of guys in town that um, to play with, but we maybe don't play as often as people would think, just because everyone's on schedules everyone's that are so different. different weeks, and everyone's wanting to play tournaments at different times. Of course, yeah. With your base being in the US, is a PGA Tour card something that's on your agenda in the future? Are you happy to to keep going on the European Tour primarily? You know, as absolutely like it's just you know I wouldn't deny it's a it's a much uh, it's a stronger and a deeper tour than the European tour. Um, you know, because the world ranking points are higher and the money's higher. You know, so it's uh, who wouldn't want to play over here more? Um, and it, obviously, for me living here, uh, it would make things an awful lot easier. Um, but. Um, it's a funny, it's a funny situation. I'm kind of stuck. I'm almost like stuck a little bit because um, I can't. Like Europe is too has been too good in the last few years to give up. Like mm-hmm. we've started playing for you know some really big, uh, you know these Rolex events are so so big for world ranking points and money. Um, that there's just there's like always something to chase like. Like it could be keeping your card, it could be um, trying to get into the top 60 for the race to Dubai, or maybe trying to finish in a certain position on the race to Dubai for your, you know, your endorsements with your club manufacturers, things like that. There's just always like a goalpost that you seem to be working towards that means you have to kind of keep playing. Um, and if I was to, a lot of people ask, oh, when, why don't you go and play some corn ferry events? But that would mean missing events in Europe, obviously. Um, so it is it is tricky. And then even trying to play some of the Monday qualifiers for the PGA Tour, that means I have to be off the week before and then off that week. So And it has to be probably somewhere like within driving distance. So it just doesn't, yeah. it just doesn't really happen. The opportunities aren't, aren't really available. So, um, if you know, the, the easy answer to the question is to, uh, you know, if I play play better and get inside the top fifty in the world, then you know, your world world's your oyster at that point, um, and you have access to anything, yeah, you want to do really. Yeah, so I was just, that's what well, my next question was going to be. I, I think I may not know all the details, but it's a little bit more difficult than people realize to transfer, kind of say, from the European Tour to the PGA Tour if you're not inside the world's top fifty, because essentially you're looking at hoping that you have enough points from the race to Dubai that you can go to the corn ferry playoffs. Is that correct? And fight for one. Uh, yeah, no. So there's, so not from the race to Dubai, there's no direct crossover there, but, um, through the race to Dubai, you could get into some WGCs and majors. And then that gives you the ability to earn FedEx cup points. Okay. Um, and then they, that's what you know. If you do well enough in those, you could earn enough to get to the Corn Ferry Finals. Yeah, which which is something I think I would do. But again, it depends on how they fall. Like, say if they fall over, like say they were to 
overlap with like the final, you know, our final series, our playoff events in Europe. I'm not going to give up playing, you know, and again, I'm different. I'm 36 with three young kids, you know, and the mortgage and schools and everything to pay for. So it's different than if I was 26 and single with no kids. Like, yeah, at that point, you might think, okay, yeah, I could go to the Corn Ferry finals over going to play three guaranteed seven million, you know, no cut seven million or eight million dollar events, like which in itself could be life changing. You know, if you win one of those, then that's obviously a life changing amount of money. Of course. Obviously, as is getting on the PGA tour, but not necessarily like who says that, you know, just because I've been successful for ten years in Europe or successful enough to, to keep going uh, that doesn't give me the right to say that I can just, you know, enter the Corn Ferry Finals and be guaranteed to, to you know, to work through them and, yeah. and have a PGA Tour card at the end. Like, these guys are so, so good. It's unbelievable. That's playing these little mini tour events and along with some of the guys in town, you know, there's just, you know, guys that, you know, just names you've, you've never heard of and a lot of names you will never hear of because... There's just so few seats at the table that it's, it served as a little bit of a reminder as to how many golfers are just sitting, waiting to take your spot, and they're all so good and so hungry. It's like you got to be. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel like just now I'm a little bit stuck, um, but you know. The European Tour is not exactly a, a bad place to to be. Stuck. No, de- definitely not. And I think, like the sort of the experience and comfort level you have there, the ability of getting into the top fifty is probably you know not that it's easy, but maybe an easier route than trying to completely change where you're playing and hope that you have a hot four weeks in the in the Corn Ferry Finals. You know, it's probably a, a more stepwise progression. Just keep going on the European Tour, maybe. Yeah, I think so, and. You know, you know, top hundred in the world would probably open a couple doors as well. You know, that would certainly get you in the PGA Championship. It would, um, you know, potentially get you a couple other invites throughout the year. Um, you know, so that, you know, it's not as it's maybe not as cut and dry as top fifty in the world. But you know, if you start playing better anywhere, just takes care of everything really. Yeah, yeah. you just got to keep keep going and um yeah once once i start hitting these new bombs for down the fairways i'll be <laughs> exactly yeah i'll be in a good spot that's it i'll send your commission in the post for that plug scott thanks yeah <laughs> so what's what's really interesting to me there is like you're a really well established pro on the european tour and one of my questions was what fuels your quest to get better and i was gonna ask about Ryder cups majors you know essentially the the accolades and you know the dreams anyone playing golf has and what's interesting is we'll touch on in a second i'm sure those are things you still think about but you've also mentioned essentially things that everybody else is thinking about is kids mortgages schools summer camps like you're 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 funding all these things but say on a on a day-to-day basis are you thinking about when you're going practicing, is it just, okay, today I need to work on my wedges. I need to improve my distance control. 
or how often do you have, say, the big picture of, you know, you putting on the Ryder Cup uniform or are you picking up the Open Championship? Uh, yeah, you know, like, uh, Ryder Cup's a massive one for me. That's I've always, you know, like, I think from a young age, it might have been, like, 97 Valderrama would have been, like, I was probably old enough at that point to really understand what it was all about, and I got really into it. Um, I think... I think that was definitely, like, that definitely, uh, it's a really tough thing to do if you're not in the world's top 50 playing in the European Tour again because you don't have access to a lot of the world points that, you know, obviously the way the Europe, the European team's point systems work. Um, but that is definitely something that um, that I would love to do. I I just miss playing team golf as well. I always love playing golf, being part of a, a team. Like winning or being successful is obviously great as an individual, but it's essentially kind of like you, your caddy, and then your team around you will all sh- you know share a little piece of of that um, enjoyment. But you're you as the as the player is the only person that's actually feeling the yeah. the whole thing. You know yeah. there. Whereas when you win as a team, everyone's been through the the whole thing together, which I, um, which I kind of I've always missed that from you know growing up in teams because it was when you grew up almost everything was team golf, um, county and then international and college. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely, I, I really miss that stuff. But um, yeah, right, Ryder Cups, majors, um, yeah, all that kind of stuff definitely still still motivates me and then what really gets me going is when you have a little bit of uh, success and then you know you realize right okay I'm top 30 in the order of merit or the race of the buy is going to get me in the open next year things like that um you know if someone dangles a carrot in front of you like I'm I've always been quite good at going to get it if I feel as though it's a realistic goal um, yeah no that's great um so no, yeah, all of those things still, still fire me up. Um, as but then, like you touched on as well, so does, so does the thought of all the other, you know, of yeah. just life. Like yeah, you gotta, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you like gotta you, take you, the boxes. You win a European Tour event; it's worth three quarters of a million or a million dollars, and you know you're putting that down on a house, or that's a kid's schooling taken care of, or a couple of kids' yeah. schoolings taken care of. That's that's cool too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I was lucky enough. Uh, I finished second in one of these Rolex events a couple of years ago. Um, and that, you know, that it was such a ridiculous amount of money that, uh, you know, we, we bought our house with it. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, which is, you know, it's just so fortunate to be able to, uh, you know, have those opportunities. Um, but yeah, I guess it's up to, to me to, try and take them when they're presented <laughs> no definitely and i'm looking forward to having the fit for golf logo on your t-shirt when you play in a, a dare manor in 2024 yeah. at the Ryder cup <laughs> that's a, that's yeah, i'm not deep. sure that not sure if they'll uh, let that one fly <laughs> i will see we'll see um you currently work with the well-known golf instructor hugh mar our golf coach he would probably prefer me to refer to him as can you give us a little bit of insight into some of the technical things that have evolved in your game over your development, say maybe from turning pro to where you are now? Was there 
like very, very uh, clear things that you've changed that have led to an improvement in, in progress from a technique perspective? Um, yeah, I've, uh, I've kind of been around the houses a little bit, uh, to be honest. I, when I first turned pro, I was working with um, Coach Alan McCloskey at home. And when I when I first went to him, he uh, he told me that I was uh, I can't remember his exact words, but um, I think he said my bunker play was the only part of my game that was good enough to be a te- he calls it a television golfer. Um, so that was a bit of a you know that was obviously just one guy's opinion, but I how long did you to- stay with him? Uh, I was with him a long time. I was with him for, uh, so I messed around kind of mini tours and stuff for like three years. Till... So he he basically took me from playing on the Euro Pro uh, in the UK all the way through to being a European Tour winner. Um, wow. So I was with him for like seven years, probably at least. Um, and then I decided in my wisdom that it would be a good idea to go and see uh, David Ledbetter for whatever reason. Uh, I was obviously struggling a little bit at the time. Um, and What year was this, Scott, when you saw David Ledbetter? I think it was... It must have been... Was it 20, 1918? It must have been like the winter of 16, I think, maybe, or 17. That I, I worked with him for for over a year anyway, and I I loved it. Like a, he he really helped me understand a lot of stuff. Um, at the time he was starting his a swing stuff. Um, if you've read his book or know anything about that book, yeah. um, and the reason I was drawn to that uh, was that I felt like a lot of my swing traits were that you know, and characteristics that I had in my swing, not necessarily flaws, but characteristics were kind of like his ideas and his behind his A-swing philosophy. Um, so I wanted to go and see him and, you know, and ask him a little bit more. And, I, you know, I loved what he, what he had to say. And then, and then we got to work. Um, so I think he helped improve, improve me a little bit from where I was. He certainly he got my golf swing looking better than, than maybe what it was, um, but not necessarily performing any better. Um, so then after that, I then went to one of his um, one of his guys, and then obviously it was the the reverse of what I'm dealing with now. I, you know, he was based over here, but yeah. then I was I was still living in Scotland at the time. So then I started working with one of his guys, um, Andrew Nicholson, um, down in Newcastle there um, at the Winyard he's at. Um, so I was with Andrew for a couple of years. Andrew's by far the most knowledgeable golf coach I've ever come across. Um, he was, he knew everything. Uh, he knew absolutely everything. Um, and we had a great, we had a great bond actually. Uh, kind of, I felt like we fed it, fed off each other really well. Um, um, and we complimented each other really well. I think we kind of helped each other out quite a lot. Um, and then, at that point, I moved back here, and I felt as though I, you know, I wasn't having. I needed somebody to work with when I was at home. Um, okay. So that led me to 
um, work with Jordan Dempsey, who I still do work with here. At, um, he works at the Performance Centre here at Sawgrass. Um, so I worked with Jordan here for um, like 18 months. And then I still I still do work with Jordan as well. Um, but I just, I, when I'm on the road, uh, I do some stuff with Hugh. And then when I'm at home, um, you know, they, they kind of, they work together. They talk to each other. Um, so that everyone's on the same page with what we're trying to do. Um, I had worked for with Hugh solely on short game for, for uh, maybe like four years or so, and then um, I was struggling at the end of last year um, in Turkey, and I asked him just to to take a look at some full swing stuff, and um, and I liked you know I liked his ideas, and I played I played really well that week. I got a top ten, so we kind of carried it on from from there um so i guess that's a little bit unique in the fact that kind of have two swing coaches but everyone's on the same page and um you know i feel like i'm i'm kind of always steering the ship rather than them giving me conflicting ideas or anything like that yeah i imagine from that background too you've probably developed a pretty good idea of essentially looking after yourself from all the different traveling the different tidbits you've gotten from coaches, you probably have a very good understanding of your own fundamentals that you need and your own tendencies that you need to stay on top of. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like I know I had a great conversation the other day with you actually, you know, with talking about swing, swing flaws and swing characteristics. Like, you know, that like I, I love to feel for whatever reason, I, I play well when I feel as though the club's outside my hands in the backswing. And I really struggle when I, whenever it gets, like what would be neutral to another guy um, or by the book would be neutral. Uh, for me, I actually don't play particularly well from that position. Um, so, you know, that is definitely a characteristic of mine. And um, I think Hugh's got a great understanding of the kind of matchups required when, you know, a player likes to feel certain things um, because, well, you know, the, we've got, if there's 156 guys every week at a golf tournament, um, you know, there's no, there's no two of those 156 with the, the, the exact same yeah, swing. Of course. Um, you know, we've all got our own little, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies that probably makes us tick um, and keeps us comfortable as well. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I think the understanding of, you know, players getting, one thing that I've heard that's interesting from Rory when he talks about his work with Michael Bannon, and obviously a lot of that is remote too, is he talks about once he's in a certain range with his swing of, say, positions and, and numbers mm. on the track, man, well, then it's a case of just go and play. And it's when things yeah. get outside those ranges where, I suppose, elite players struggle to allow their talent shine through. So it's sort of keeping it on the, on the right track and allowing the players play. I yeah, have, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think... Uh, I think, uh, yeah, like, a, you know, to go back to like a, you know, a day, a day's work, like I'll be on the range and I check off, you know, three or four things that I know I've got to take care of from a technical point of view that if it gets sloppy, then I'm going to fall outside of, of my range. Uh, yeah. And then after that, it's a case of how well are you going to chip and putt it? Because you're not, you're not going to hit every shot perfectly. And, um, you know, and you just got to take, if you have opportunities, it's you know you, you know it's about how how many of them you take. Uh, really, is what determines the number on the card. Yeah, 
Okay, two questions, Scott. I won't keep you too much longer. Um, because of the line of work I'm in, I'm always sharing statistics about clubhead speed and distance. Looking through your statistics from the time you've been on tour, you've had quite a remarkable improvement in driving distance. And this isn't a plug for me, as all of these stats are from before we started working together on your training. But from 2004, in 2014, you averaged 288 yards off the tee which was pretty much bang on the European tour average. If we fast forward to 2019, you averaged 300 yards. So a 12 yard increase, but the tour average had upped to 295. Um, in 2020, you're averaging 308, which would be a 20 yard increase. Now it's only measured on three tournaments and I think they were in particularly hot climates. So that might come back down. And that's also what the tour average was. But essentially, if we look at the 12 yards from 2014 to 2019, what's happened? Is it technique, equipment, training? Is it a combination? Uh, yeah, I think it's a combination of everything. Um, I've always done some sort of training for golf. Um, nothing, nothing specifically club head speed related until um, our work. Uh, you know over the last seven or eight weeks um but i think yeah just maybe like you know there's no doubt technology has has moved the needle like i'm not i would never dispute that but even since 2014 um yeah i think i think since 2014 it's you know like nothing nothing massive you know yeah, like yeah. i was the, the the big thing was the was the pro v1 golf ball that was obviously where the the biggest jump came um and since then i think all that's happened is that the generation that's on tour now were taught when they were when they learned the game they were taught that they had to hit up on the driver now when mm -hmm. i was when i was no one told me ever told me you had to hit up on the driver till i was in like my my junior year of of college here so i would have been 20 at the time 20 maybe yeah i would have been 20 at the time some so that's the first time anyone's ever told me this is how you hit your driver further so and but the generation we have coming through now and the reason why i think the average age on tour might be getting a little bit lower as well is because these guys all know how to hit it far through the technology that's available to them and when I don't mean club and ball technology there I mean like the all the maximum the, the, the launch conditions from the track man exactly yeah you know the this is what has really changed everyone's understanding of how you hit the, the ball further so you know and I, I personally I don't think it's a problem like and I don't understand how you can ever scale it back because the longest you know the longest guys are, are are always going to be the longest guys. So yeah, I, I don't really know where they're going to go with that. But I think where um, a lot of people get lost in that argument is that it's really two separate arguments. There is longer hitters getting too much of an advantage. You're always going to have the longer hitter getting an advantage. The other thing is just the golf courses. Is do yeah. we have to start making them eight thousand yards long? They take five hours to walk, and there is six hundred yards between a green and tee box. I think it's yeah. It's two separate sides that people are, are getting confused between. Like, it doesn't matter what you do with the golf ball. The, the best drivers are still going to have the advantage. It's just yeah. a matter of maybe making the golf courses slightly more sustainable going forward. Yeah, but they, 
but they always have had the advantage. And I think that's what people, everyone's, everyone's just like with the amount of data that's available to us on, on how to hit it far and why hitting it far is so important. Like you've just got more people that are, that are, you know, switched on to the fact of how important that is. So instead of there only being 10% of the field able to hit at a certain distance now, 30% of the field can do that because they've all realized how important it is and adapted their, their either their technique or their training or whatever it may be to, in order to hit it that far. Um, yeah. You know, but what, you know, what sport hasn't changed through the, through the time, through the years, like it's, you know, you could go on, obviously you could go on forever about this subject and I don't really know what the perfect answer is to it. I think, a good answer would be maybe reduce the size of the club head rather than, you know, if you just went back to a 360cc limit, then all of a sudden the sweet spot can't be as big. And people, and then anyone who wants to swing it, you know, 120 plus, you know, better find the middle of the face or else the misses will be will be really big. Um, so, you know, is, is the purists or, you know, the old school maybe that, I think that would please them surely if they want to see someone swinging, thrashing at it and missing it offline. But if they, you know, if they're on, they're on and they'll hit it, you know, they'll still hit it 320 yeah. down the middle. Yeah, um, I agree with you. No, that's so, interesting for sure. Um, yeah, we've kind of gone off from the original question, but. Um, no, you're, you're right. So basically, I ask you why you think you've gotten longer from kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Mid twenties to early thirties, like you're you're getting older, but you're getting longer. So mm-hmm. you essentially answered the question perfectly. A combination of technique, definitely help from equipment, and you've always been kind of looking after your training. So mm-hmm. plus plus when you add in, and I think there are too often uh, things that aren't given enough credit for kind of the the distance, say um, concentration that people are focusing on now. Number one is Mark Brody and strokes gained. We can pretty yeah, quickly exactly. see why distance is advantageous. That's a, a rabbit yeah. hole I won't get into in this podcast. And then the second one is TrackMan. So yeah. like I, I'm not a golf instructor and a lot of the people listening aren't, but you can get somebody who's swinging, say if you're talking about a, an average golfer who's 90 miles per hour with the driver, depending on their impact conditions, their launch angle, their strike position and their spin rate, you can probably swing a, a 90 mile an hour driver and get 20 yards difference in 30 seconds if you change someone's yeah. launch angle. And then when you, get up to, and when you get up to the higher levels with tour pros, you're not going to get that big an increase because they're all already really, really good. But it might be a five or a 10 yard increase in 30 seconds when you yeah. see on the track, man, you're hitting two degrees down rather than two degrees up. But um, yeah, yeah that's, that's something that I might get someone else to, to delve into a little <laughs> bit deeper someday. Uh, last question, Scott, and I let you go. Then I know you have a very important happy hour to attend to. Um, yeah, well, uh, we're actually going to the beach now, so I need oh, to pack. Ha- I need oh, to pack happy hour with me to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> so, nearly everybody listening to the podcast is an amateur golfer trying to reduce their handicap. Can you provide us with one universal tip? Um. Yeah, I mean. Uh, a concept uh, that they can concentrate on maybe it doesn't have to be like a, a technique tip but one concept that could help pretty much everybody that you've picked up from pro-ams watching people play 
Yeah, you know, it's a bit of a cliche one, but it, you know, it, it always it still strikes a chord with me with me to this day, and that's just you know, it's golf is a hundred percent to do with how good your misses are, not not how good your good shots are. You know, like I, you know, uh, it's it's maybe it's maybe a bit of a boring cliche answer, but I I just think that um, you know, if people can keep their miss in front of them, then you know, they find the ball and they, they go again. Like, no, uh, yeah, no, no hazards, no penalty shots and handicaps probably coming down pretty much. Yeah. And that's not, you know, I'm not, that's not, I'm not talking about playing, I'm playing safe or anything. I'm just talking about, you know, hone your technique so that, uh, you know, your bad shot is, is you can still find it. Um, that would be, that would probably be my boring advice. Uh, yeah, no, but that's perfect. You know, that's steady, great. steady, slow wins the race. Yeah, unless you're playing a Monday qualifier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Scott, thanks a million for your time. I really appreciate it, and I hope the listeners enjoy it. And I'll chat soon. Thanks very much. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be on. Thank you again to Scott for his time. I hope you enjoyed listening, and hopefully, I will talk to you next time.